Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand back up with me as we read scripture this morning. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful that we can rest in your wisdom, in your knowledge, in your sovereignty. Father, you know each person's heart here. You know which sins we are wrestling with. You know which hurts we are feeling deeply. Father, my plans for this passage were made couple weeks ago and throughout the week and songs were picked and prayers picked days ago. But you led in that and you continue to lead this morning still through your spirit. Would you work in each one of our hearts according to what we need and in your church according to your good purposes? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me begin by asking you a question. What was the best week of your life if you had to pick one? Maybe honeymoon? Maybe a a great family vacation? Maybe your first week at college? What was your best week? Okay, let me ask a slightly different question. What was the most important week of your life? I think that's even harder to answer. Uh, Was it maybe your first week on a a new job that became your career? What was your most important week? I don't know that I could answer that for myself, honestly. But if you ask me what was the most important week in Jesus' life, that's pretty easy. It was the last week. 30% of the material that we have from his theological biographers, the gospel writers, is focused on the last week of Jesus' life. Six out of 16 chapters in Matthew, five out of 24 in Luke, I'm sorry, six out of 16 in, in Mark, seven out of 28 in Matthew, and almost half of John, nine chapters out of 20, are dedicated to the last week 
of Jesus's life. If Jesus lives to be about 33 years old, which is our best estimate, that's about 1,700 weeks. And 30% of the biographical material we have about Jesus is focused on one of those weeks. And even before you get to the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, heading towards the cross, even before you get to that week, that week, that cross, looms large over everything Jesus did, over the entirety of his life and ministry. Uh, My original text for this week was the parable of the tares, I'd gone back and forth between that passage and Jesus healing the demoniac. But when I realized that this was the last week of the series, I thought, you know, those passages are are good, important truths to learn from those passages. But to bring a series about the gospel according to Jesus to a close, you, you need to go to the cross. Those passages, the tares, the healing of the demoniac, all the other teachings of Jesus, all the other great miracles, they lose their meaning without the cross and the resurrection. They lose their meaning without Jesus' death and resurrection, his teachings, his miracles, his healings, his life loses its meaning. Jesus' death and resurrection define his ministry, define his life. So this morning from this passage, I want to ask and think with you about two big questions. First, why did Jesus say that he must die? He must. And then second, How do we inadvertently play the role of Peter today? How do we inadvertently play the role of Peter today? First question, why does Jesus say that he must suffer and die? And the answer is because God's purpose in Jesus wasn't just to plaster over the catastrophe of sin— but to remedy it fully. I remember when I was a teenager, learning to control my teenage angst and anger, I once punched a a hole in the wall of my bedroom. My parents didn't know about it until we moved out because I just moved a poster over the hole. A couple years ago, my youngest son, Luke, put a giant butt-sized hole in the drywall of our basement playing Nerf basketball. I wasn't tempted as an adult now just to put a poster over it. I wanted to fix it right. So I got the drywall and the mud and the tape and braced it with a stud behind it and fixed it right. Kinda. <laughs> For Jesus... To remedy sin and its consequences right, fully, in the whole, 
means he must suffer and die. The context of Jesus beginning to talk about his suffering and his death is, I think, really important. Jesus in his ministry has been on a roll. He's healed the deaf and the mute. He's healed the blind. Crazy, miraculous, great, triumphant kind of stuff. And he's been in conflict with the religious leaders of the day, and he's putting them in his play, in their place. Great stuff. And in the passage just before this that was read, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they gave those answers. Some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? Jesus asked. And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And it's at that point that Jesus gives this incredible promise to the church. Yes, and on that rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The disciples had to be feeling pretty good, pretty triumphant. They've seen these great miracles. They've seen these great teachings. They've just been told that Jesus is going to be building an institution on them that will not fail. And now, he says, I must suffer and die. Because all those miracles and all that teaching, that would have just plastered over sin. That wouldn't have remedied sin. Death was the end. Death was the telos, the purpose, the goal. And not just death, but death and resurrection. So Mark says... Now he began to teach them. Now that they recognize that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, he begins to teach them about what kind of Messiah he really is. And it's not the kind they expected. It's the kind of Messiah whose Messiahship is defined by suffering and death. It's the kind of messiahship defined by Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we beheld him in low esteem. Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, Peter, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And this is the kind of Christ I am. The, the Jews in Jesus' day did not connect Messiahship with this suffering servant. 
But Jesus says, I must. I must suffer and die. He's not saying, I will suffer and die. He's not merely predicting his suffering and death. He's acknowledging that that is his vocation. That is his calling to suffer and die and rise again. See here, this is the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. If you take away crucifixion and resurrection, you, you don't have Christianity anymore. If you take away the crucifixion, Jesus' atoning death for us, you're left with, at best, a sin management system. You're left with a a religion that helps you plaster over your sin, but doesn't truly address the guilt and the shame and the separation between holy God and sinful man. It is by his death that he reconciles humanity to God. And you take away the, the resurrection, and what you have left is the sad story of a rabbi whose teachings got him martyred. A a prophet who, who threw himself on the wheel of history, trying to force God's hand. The crucifixion and the resurrection define Jesus' life and define Christianity. But sometimes we inadvertently play the role of Peter and say, enough of that cross-talk, Jesus. It was so off-putting to, G- to, to Peter that the Messiah would suffer and die. He pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. I, I wonder if later in Peter's life, he told that story to his nieces and nephews and maybe kids in his Sunday school class. You know what, guys? There was a time when I rebuked Jesus. Yeah, I was that foolish. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Bypassing the cross is Satan's religion. Bypassing the cross leads only to destruction. And sometimes inadvertently, we step into Peter's shoes. Let me discuss briefly, you're going to freak out when I say this, five ways that we sometimes step in and play the role of Peter. They're brief. First, sometimes we adopt what Martin Luther called a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. The theology of glory is triumphalistic. It's all about power and success It tries to create utopias, either communal or individual utopias. But it uses worldly methods to do it. It bypasses the cross and says, we'll build a church with a sword. We'll build a church with worldly means. We'll we'll succeed. We'll receive glory by our own hard work. 
the most glaring example of this theology of glory is the modern health and wealth gospel movement. I feel like we beat up on that movement enough. I don't want to rehash things that I've said two weeks ago. I think that movement is on our radar. But that's only one way that the theology of glory creeps in to the evangelical church. Jesus says to Peter, you you have your mind not on the concerns of God, but on human concerns. And that can creep into the church. When we use power, when we use political means means in self-serving ways, we're pursuing a theology of glory and eschewing the cross. The second way I think we step in and play the role of Peter sometimes is by simply minimalizing the importance of the cross. We make it a molehill instead of a mountain. We treat it as a part of our theology instead of the center of our theology. There's different ways you can minimize something. You can minimize something by by pressing it down to the same level as everything else, or you can minimize something by elevating everything to the same level of importance. Professors can minimize the importance of, of good academic work by refusing to give an A in a class, even when an A is deserved. They've pushed everyone down to the same level. Or a professor can minimize the importance of good academic work by giving everybody an A and elevating everybody, even those who didn't do good academic work, to the same level. We can do that with the cross. We can push it down, and there are some within the broader evangelical movement who would do that and speak ill of a theology of the cross, speak out against it, say we're overplaying it, it's not as important as we've made it out. I don't think that's our problem. I fear that sometimes my problem as I elevate other things to the same level of importance in my theology. I I elevate Jesus the teacher, Jesus the healer, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the revolutionary. I elevate all those to the same level as Jesus, the crucified Messiah, who is reconciling the world to himself through his suffering and death. Those other things are true. They're important. We ought to teach on them. But they're true in light of the cross. They're true because of the cross. The cross is preeminent. The third way that we sometimes step in and play the role of Peter is by emphasizing in our own lives or in our churches Christian living without the cross. The Christian sociologist, Christian Smith, has referred to this brand of religion as moral therapeutic deism. And he says that's 
really the religion of, Mer- of America now. Moral therapeutic deism. What does that look like? Back in, oh, the 1950s, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, pastor at uh, 10th Prez in Philadelphia, was asked in an interview, what would it look like if Satan took control of this city, Philadelphia? I'm sure the interviewer expected wild, random imagery. But what Barnhouse said was, well, if Satan took over the city, the bars would close, porn would be outlawed, there'd be no swearing, everyone would greet each other with, yes, sir, good morning, sir, yes, ma'am, good morning, ma'am, and the churches would be filled But the kind of churches that would be filled would be churches that didn't preach the cross. They preached self-help. They preached seven ways to be happier, five ways to be richer. They'd be nice churches. I think sometimes in our quest, and I'm talking about evangelicalism, not specifically ECC, but in our quest to be relevant, we come to church, we prepare sermons to give people their, their new marching orders for the week, how to go out and transform their world or how to go out and transform their lives. We give and look for tips for better living, tips for health, tips for happiness. Michael Horton is right when he said there is nothing in the universe more relevant to us guilty image bearers than the good news that God has found a way to be just and the justifier. That's the most relevant news in the world. How do we as guilty image bearers be reconciled to God? And the answer is the cross. The fourth way that we sometimes step into the shoes of Peter is failing to live in light of the cross. Sometimes we live as though the failure of our first parents in Eden is the final word spoken over us and our lives. Uh, The cross freed us from slavery to sin. The cross freed us from fear of death. But sometimes we still live in that slavery. We don't claim that freedom from sin for ourselves. We still give ourselves over to those continual, habitual, sinful patterns, living as though we're still slaves of sin. That's denying the impact of the cross. Or sometimes we live as if death hasn't been defanged, that death, our ultimate enemy, hasn't been destroyed, and that is living in denial of the importance and the victory of the cross and resurrection. We step into the shoes of Peter when we fail to live in light of the cross. And lastly, 
we step into the role of Peter, when we, when we refuse to follow Jesus to the cross, Jesus said, I must suffer and I must die and I will rise again. I must. And if you will be my disciple, you must take up your cross and you must follow me. We might embrace Jesus' cross, but try to sidestep it in our own lives. But true religion embraces Christ's cross as the only hope for humanity. And having been freed from the shackles of self-love and self-autonomy, we take up our cross and follow Jesus in the way of sacrificial living. True religion, Christianity, embraces the cross, embraces Christ's cross, and embraces our own cross. Where Jesus led, we follow. If you don't know yet what it means to live in light of the freedom of Jesus' cross, and of his resurrection. I would love to have a one-on-one conversation with you about that. That is the most defining week of my life. And it's not a week of my life. It's a week of Jesus' life. It defines me. I hope it defines you too. That you have been bought by one who went to a cross for you and rose again so that you could have newness of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are fickle people. Things that ought to amaze and impress become the norm. And we think We can move past that. We can move on to something more intriguing, more exciting. There is nothing, Father, more intriguing, more exciting, more important than the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his life poured out for us, and the victory of Jesus in his resurrection. Father, we pray that that would, that those truths, that cross, that love, that grace would define every day of our life in you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.